Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of our events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. Tonight, City Lights, in conjunction with Yale University Press, celebrate the publication of Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. It's by Sam Woolley. Manufacturing Consensus presents an in-depth exploration of social media and emergent technology that details the inner workings of modern propaganda. The book draws on eight years of original research, drawing upon international ethnographic studies amongst people who actually build, combat, and experience these propaganda campaigns. Professor Woolley presents an extensive view of the evolution of computational propaganda, offering us a glimpse into the future and suggesting pragmatic responses for those on the forefront of promoting democratic principles. Before we begin, I would like to take this moment to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Samuel Woolley is Assistant Professor of Journalism and Media, Program Director of the Propaganda Research Lab, and Knight Faculty Fellow at the Center for Media Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. Joining him tonight in conversation is Jeff Horowitz. Jeff Horowitz is an award-winning technology reporter for the Wall Street Journal based in the Bay Area. His reporting has won repeated recognition. He's previously served as financial and enterprise reporter for the Associated Press in Washington, D.C., where his work earned him the Christopher J. Wells Memorial Prize from the Knight Begote Fellowship. Now, we're delighted to have both of you with us tonight. Before we begin, I would like to remind everyone we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard, with which you may purchase copies of Manufacturing Consensus, as well as Professor Woolley's previous book, The Reality Game. So uh, we'll be featuring a Q&A towards the end of the evening. So please do post your questions, your comments in the chat function. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to Samuel Woolley and Jeff Horowitz. Gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Such a pleasure. Uh, all right, Sam. Um, let's. Uh, you're still with me. I am. I'm here. Okay. Excellent. So yeah, let's start this off. Uh, I um, think I spoke with you in my first couple of months. You were living out. You were out in Berkeley at the time. Um, I spoke with you in my first couple of months covering Facebook. Uh, and I think my question boiled down to uh, something, something bots, Russians, bad things, internet. And, um, you know, we talked back then, uh, this is in 2019, and I was uh, perhaps a little green, but I guess I'd love to hear about um, how you got, first of all, your, your entrance into bot-related reporting, uh, as this has become something of a career, and, um, and also sort of where you came to this book from that you had not covered in previous material. Sure. So uh, the story of this goes way back to 2013 uh, when I was a PhD student at the University of Washington out in Seattle. Uh, and I was working with a uh, professor there by the name of Phil Howard, who's now at Oxford. And Phil and I were talking about the ways in which we saw social media and the internet being used for democratic purposes during the Arab Spring. 
And something kept coming up, which was that there was a lot of spam surrounding those conversations. There was a lot of garbage on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. And not only that, but some of it seemed to be coordinated. Some of it seemed to be oriented towards attacking and harassing activists and journalists who were trying to cover the event. And um, a lot of it seemed to be automated bluntly. Uh, and so we wanted to study that. And, and we came up with this idea that we called at the time computational propaganda. We said, what happens when you automate propaganda? What happens when you amplify this stuff? And so for the last 10 years or so, I've been working to, to study exactly that question. What happens when you massively amplify and suppress through computational means the ability to propagandize? Um, and over the course of time, it's, it's revolutionized my thinking about what it means to, to spread propaganda and, and by association, things like disinformation uh, and coordinated harassment and trolling and all of these sorts of things. And um, along the way, you know, it's, it's led me to, to a lot of traveling, looking at the ways in which state actors do this stuff, but also the ways in which regular people are able to leverage bots and also a lot of other tools these days in order to amplify their uh their own <laughs> their own political agenda um and so that's where we are now and and what's in this book i think that's not in other books is the eight years of field work that i've done in various countries talking to the people who make and build propaganda online and also to the folks that track it and work to combat it as well so on the people who build and make it um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've had a, I've probably spent more time with the latter camp, right? People who are concerned about this stuff than with the people who are like, this is awesome. Um, I guess I'd, I'd be curious if, if there is like any sense that this is shameful or, um, you know, or untoward or that, I mean, do they consider themselves to be duplicitous or is this, um, you know, just kind of, uh, what you do? If you want to have impact. Um, yeah, broadly speaking, you know, you, you can split these folks into two camps. Uh, on the one hand, you have people that very much buy into the politics and very much buy into the ideology of, of leveraging and, and, and of, of a given movement. And so they believe that leveraging the Internet to amplify that content is just another way of, of getting the message out there. And so... Yeah, even those folks sometimes will admit that what they're doing is duplicitous or uh, underhanded. Um, but many times they 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 like to brag about what they do, and they think of themselves as gaming the system for the benefit of of their political cause. The other camp is people that do this to make money. Uh, there's a lot of riches to be made on the internet if you can figure out how to get clicks. If you can figure out how to game Google AdSense, if you can figure out how to get a lot of YouTube viewers, um, or if you can figure out how to rent botnets um, or other kinds of services that allow others to amplify their content online. And so those folks are, you know, they also do a lot of bragging. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's some symmetry there because both of these kinds of people, they feel like they're kind of a leg up on other people online. They feel like they've figured they've hacked the system. In many ways, what they do is quite rudimentary. Some of these people are more sophisticated than others, but most of the time they're not doing anything that amazing. Uh, but yeah, you know, like it, it, it runs a gamut. I, I think about like in India, you have these folks called BJP 
the BJP party has these folks called IT Yodas. Yoda meaning Sanskrit or meaning warrior in Sanskrit. And they are diehard fans of Narendra Modi, the prime minister there. And they do not think that uh, having 1,000 or 2,000 racked cell phones to log on to WhatsApp and post messages is a bad thing. They think it's fantastic. Not only that, they think that we're getting around WhatsApp's forwarding limits. And so we can we can do things for Modi that no one else can. And we've really figured something out. I think you've been talking then, to some of the same people I have um, because <laughs> they uh, they might have shown a particular tech company racks of phones very proudly at one point. They so, did, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, but but I'm I have some familiarity with those details. So that's funny to hear. Um, it's, it's I too really am funny. writing a book, Sam. No, um, but, no, 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 uh, no. It's funny you mentioned that, Jeff, because the way I found out about it is that someone at a particular tech company mentioned to me they'd seen a bunch of racked phones in India and they're like, hey, you should contact these guys. And so I weirdly got put in contact with them through a social media company. So anyway. oh, you got in touch with them. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I okay, yeah. So this is this is yeah. this is material that um that I uh, uh I I have not spoken directly to the source. Okay. Uh so I guess um a question for you is like first like you mentioned the sophistication of this, that it's candidly not that, you know, you don't have to be a genius to do it. And I did notice that unemployed appeared to be one of the key descriptors, uh, professional descriptors of people that you spoke to. Um, and so I, I guess the question I would have is like the level of sophistication for this versus the, um, the level of impact is something I'd be curious about. Um. I think that the most well-resourced actors, so state governments, the intelligence community, uh, militaries, corporations, uh, et cetera, are the ones who have who can scale their operations the most and, and arguably have the most impact. Um, the the folks that are you know by themselves that are trying to build botnets on their own do this have markedly less impact. Although there are people that hit the sweet spot, there there are people that I interviewed for this book and that I spoke to that are former computer engineers who are retired, um, who do this uh, as a hobby, and who are very good at doing it, um, and is had a special luck prior to 2016, but even now have have luck. Um, you know, the landscape is shifting. It's shifting away from fully automated campaigns and towards more semi-automated campaigns and the use of influencers and other stuff. But uh, but yeah, you know, propaganda, as I say, tongue in cheek in the book, has been democratized in a lot of ways in the same ways that journalism and anyone can quote unquote be a journalist on Instagram or break a story at least. Anyone can be a propagandist online. But someone at the Wall Street Journal is going to have a lot more resources than someone who's just doing it for fun uh, now and then. Um, hopefully, ho hope hopefully, hopefully we are not engaging in propaganda. But but we get uh, oh no, get I mean journal that from yeah. time to time. No, um, <laughs> the, uh, I guess a, so. A, a question is: um, Do you have a sense of sort of the? Um, the difficulty in making this stuff seem novel um and because i you know i think you you know you noted that in 2012 2013 when you're looking at arab spring stuff um you know it 
it looked like crap, right? It's like some people were just like spamming random stuff at a hashtag. Uh, like it's obvious that this is not, you know, human behavior. Um, has that really evolved or is it just like basically an arms race of amplifying crap for the most part? I mean, you mentioned that that we're getting into sort of a more semi-automated thing. And, and so I'd be curious about that. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a means and ends game. So... Um, if you think about this in terms of like a taxonomy of, of, of methods or tools, like there's, there's people who still use spam, um, deliberately use spam in ways that might seem like just total garbage to us, uh, but that are still able to achieve what they want, which is blocking conversations through like the co-option of hashtags or just flooding certain kinds of, of discussions with nonsense. And that's an age-old tactic um, that some people on Twitter used to call Twitter bombing, but that still happens today. Um, Elon Musk is very fond, for instance, of crypto bots and the, re the ways in which those play a role on, on making Twitter junky. Um, uh, and then there, there are people that, that run the gamut all the way up to very sophisticated folks who are leveraging some degree of machine learning or AI to build uh, bots that, well, they're not true AI chatbots like, you know, um, like some of the stuff we see coming out now, arguably, they are able to engage in more and more sophisticated conversation. They're mostly successful at getting um, people who aren't digital natives to, to be tricked. Uh, so people in developing countries, people um, who are older. Uh, Simultaneously, there is a lot of use of humans, coordinated groups of humans and coordinated groups of influencers, celebrity influencers, and also small scale ones. Uh, and, and those folks uh, are much better at doing the conversation stuff. I think the bots and a lot of the automated tactics, what the folks argue is that they're better at gaming the algorithms. So it's more of a computer to computer conversation. Um, and I, so I've had... I guess I, I have in my reporting come across allegations that in certain countries, um, in particular, um, th in the Middle East, there have been efforts to affect not just what's trending, but also just what recommendation systems end up promoting more broadly, right? Like, so what, um, uh, basically just engagement to propel things out to a very wide audience. And um, and I guess I'm curious about how robust you think uh, platforms have been, if there's anyone that stands out as being reasonably good at this in terms of blocking it, um, or if you know uh, I have 50 people and they have some big, slightly spammy accounts, uh, you know, whatever I'm saying is gonna go, you know, is gonna go big. Yeah, um, the major platforms have made progress on this, but a lot most of them are still pretty bad. Uh, Twitter was getting better. Um, Twitter was becoming kind of a best in class. Uh, you know, it's a dubious distinction given that there was still a lot of issues, particularly in non-English um, uh, instances. But um, but in order to really game recommendations and game trending algorithms across. Uh, Twitter for, for the last couple of years, you had to be very sophisticated. You had to be pretty good at, at, um, at organizing mostly human actors and to some degree, you know, some bots to support those humans. Um, 
Facebook and YouTube are, you know, come come next and Facebook's made made some some headway here, but I think where we see more manipulation um, is less less in the algorithmic sense and more in the the group the Facebook group sense. Uh, that's where people are able to spread propaganda more effectively because that's where you talk to people you don't know um, on Facebook. Uh, and then you know there's some other platforms that that do really good and some that do really bad. So um, Pinterest has has taken a really hard approach to to basically saying we're not going to allow X, Y, Z sorts of content, including, say, for instance, anti-vaccine content, um, and they've taken a really hard line. But then you also have all of the clones of other social media sites that, quote, unquote, claim to be free speech um, uh, platforms like Gab and Rumble and those kinds of ones. And, and it's it's uh, the Wild West on those platforms. Um, it occurs to me that there is an incentive for platforms to suggest that they have this problem under control. Um, uh, and, and by that, I'm talking about computational propaganda more broadly, right? So if you have, you know, a group of people that are just like, say, sharing 200 comments an hour on posts, um, you know, they're going to win the game, right? Um, and it occurs to me that, that there's, it's in the interest of platforms to define this problem very narrowly um uh like the techniques the actors and the harm and because otherwise it seems like you start having to think about things like well like should tighter rate limits be imposed on you know ip addresses or you know like should you be able to leave 200 comments per hour right um and i would be curious if you get the sense that there has been an overstatement of capacity um in the book, there is a company that sure sounds a lot like Facebook that you more or less suggest has been um, perhaps pushing the bounds of what it can credibly claim its accomplishments are. And I mean, if I look at Meta's announcements related to um, uh, inauthentic behavior, um, the networks just keep getting smaller and smaller every year. Um, and like candidly, the things they do bust, they look really lame. Like. Like even the U.S. run bot thing that was, you know, Twitter and and Meta busted, you know, um, last year, super lame, accomplished nothing. Like, and so I'd be curious to get your sense of if they're effective and um, why those numbers seem to be so non-concerning from the large platforms these days. Yeah, you know, there's. There's some misdirection going on there, and and you're absolutely right to point out that it that it, it's misdirection that benefits the platforms. There's without a shadow of a doubt, the platforms, most of them, over all of them, overstate what they're able to actually effectively do. Um, it, you know, in my last book, I talked about Zuckerberg's hearings uh, before Congress and how many times he mentioned AI as the solution to the problems that were being faced uh, after the 2016 election, and it was like. In the book, in the in that book, I said, you know, AI was was like Zuckerberg's MacGuffin. It was like it, it filled in everything for him. Um, it filled in every plot line, and that's still to this day pretty kind of the case. Uh, what I think is happening is that the platforms we we've we've started to look to the platforms for information on um, what's happening. Where 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 we've kind of like begun to rely on them as if they're somehow trustworthy. 
Um, you know, it's the, kind of the same as looking at a crooked police department and letting them tell you which cops are bad uh, and which cops are good. And I think that's kind of an asinine proposal. There's no true oversight of these companies. There's no, you know, there was the over, the, there's the Facebook oversight board, which, you know, it, it has a name, but a little unfortunate given the limits. <laughs> exactly. I don't even want to get started on that, but, but, uh, but you know, across all of these companies, there's still a marked lack of access to data for third party researchers. There's still a constant battle going on for us to to get more access. And in fact, we're not getting more access over the course of time. We're getting less access. So CrowdTangle is effectively closed off to researchers now. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter and now no one really knows what's going to happen there. And so, uh, you know, relying upon the social media companies for information on what's going on is is a non-starter for me um have they made some some progress yes they're actually talking about this stuff they're taking it a bit more seriously but as i said to you when we, we had a chat a little earlier um a lot of folks that i know at facebook and meta who have worked specifically on this topic and mitigation of this kind of content have been fired in recent months uh many of them and 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 all of them that i knew at twitter have been fired except for people in policy positions whose job it is to make everything look okay yeah that's um uh they've lost some good people um i acknowledge that um we should talk more about those people at some point yeah we should we should uh, no but um but uh I guess, and this is just sort of a, a question more broadly about sort of where bots fit in. I mean, I think when when you and I first met, uh, you know, that, that was, I was just sort of settling into this beat, um, you know, and it was still kind of the tail end of of the Russia and Cambridge Analytica stuff, um, given that that ran for like two years. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think there was a sense of like, if there was a sense that, that it had to be bots because normal people just didn't behave like this online. Um, and I think, you know, something that, that in my work, uh, you know, in the Facebook files stuff that seems like is that sometimes telling the difference between an automated campaign and, uh, you know, uh, someone who thinks that like quite literally Hillary Clinton is being kept alive from adrenochrome harvested in the basement of a non-existent basement of a pizza parlor. Like they act fairly similar. And, um, and I guess I'm, I'm curious about sort of how you see bots interacting with kind of the amplification systems of the platforms, because, uh, you know, I think about something like Facebook groups, um, you know, you can invite, uh, I believe the number was at least previously north of a thousand users per day. There was, I think we cited this in the Facebook files reporting, um, like there was a single user that invited 400,000 people to QAnon groups. And I guess my question is like, is that in the end pretty much the same thing in terms of effect? And does it make a difference? Um, you know, or is, yeah. Yeah, that's the, these are really great points. And, and, I mean, it's very similar to what bots do in, in some senses. So there are hyperactive users on on uh, social media. And and as, as we talked about earlier, there's people that post about a given topic on a given group page 100 times in an hour um, was, I think, the number you, you mentioned. And, and I've definitely seen that, if not even more. Um, and so quantity alone, you know, 
uh, a bot can certainly outstrip a human. They'll get caught very quickly based upon timestamps and, and the amount they're posting. So if you try to post a thousand times in an hour or 2000 times in an hour, that's just, you know, that's just clearly automated behavior. Um, what bots can do that humans can't is, is coordinate computationally. So, so there's, you know, there's more network coordination. Um, there's more ability to hone into particular topics based upon trends, based upon those sorts of things. Uh, and so what we effectively see is like, you know, the computational enhancement of propaganda in those cases. But one thing I always try to say to people, and I probably said this to you many times, Jeff, is there's always a person behind a bot, right? Uh, a, a bot is only a tool and, and a group of bots are only a tool that are as good as the person that's shepherding them. And um, the platform that is, that they're on. Yeah, exactly. And so um, in propagandists are, my friend Tim Huang likes to say propagandists are pragmatists. They will use the best tool and the cheapest tool and the easiest tool that gets the job done. And sometimes that's people and the people don't have to be smart. Um, and sometimes that's that's bots, and sometimes that's paid groups of influencers, um, and sometimes you know they just try random stuff and see what see what happens. But um, but yeah, you know th there is something to using coordinated groups of people to do something, uh, and it does carry a bit more nuance than most of the botnets that are out there. Although in many cases, not not that much more. Um, let's talk about role of other forms of media here, right? Because like social media and isolation is always kind of a, it's a bad idea to sort of try to separate that out. Um, and uh, I believe there is a direct site in the book uh, to say something along the lines of that News Corp rarely generates computational propaganda, but we regurgitate it. Uh, and as a proud Wall Street Journal reporter, um, I would uh, love to get a sense of the way that but it wasn't just the, just the journal and it, yeah, or it was news corp i believe so there's other options I'll take, I'll try not to take offense but like uh the i would be curious about the the relationship between um sort of inauthentic activity and media coverage and also whether there is any indication you see that um people in my line of work have gotten smarter uh, mm -hmm. or more skeptical about uh, things that are trending. Yeah, look, I mean, there's whole disinformation beats at some papers now. There's lots of people that are actually working on these topics specifically. And then you have folks that are that are dedicated to working on specific uh, coverage of specific companies like yourself um, and many other bright reporters. Um, there is indeed, however, a cyclical connection between what we see happening on social media in terms of computational propaganda and the spread of that coverage among especially more partisan news outlets, uh, very much partisan news outlets, folks like Breitbart um, on the right, you know, or uh, the Daily Caller. Um, and then, you know, sometimes on the left, unfortunately, folks like Huffington Post and, and Mother Jones, and you know, it's unfortunate across the board that they would look to social media as if it was a harbinger of, of like what was actually happening, because we kind of know that it's not. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there is this feedback loop there and, and journalists do play a role. Journalists are oftentimes the primary targets of manipulation campaigns. There's folks that have written about, written about this quite convincingly, like uh, Whitney Phillips, 
uh, who's written about the oxygen of amplification and how white supremacists and extremists and these kinds of folks specifically target journalists in order to try to get them to launder information that comes from dubious sources in order to make it look good. And the journalists are doing this not in a malicious way, not purposefully, but because they think they're onto something and they themselves get gamed. It doesn't happen as much now, I would say, at the the better uh, uh, you know papers that have better clear ethic, ethics guidelines that have well-trained reporters and those sorts of things. But your average newspaper around the United States, even in some large cities, does not have that kind of capacity. And they just simply don't know a lot of the time that it's, well, Unfortunately, they uh, sometimes they don't know that they shouldn't be posting tweets as if they were sources, for instance, you know, and and that's just that's just basic. Um, it's very kind if, of you to say that that only applies to small regional, you know, misguided newspapers <laughs> as opposed to pretty much everyone. Uh, well, it, it does yeah. apply. It does apply to everyone, but I will say that, like you know, the more again, this is something I say in the book a lot of times. The the more resources you have um, as an institution, and and that includes that includes training. The, the the less the less manipulatable you are but that's not you know that's not necessarily true across the board I, I will say um a question about um the future of some of this stuff um I would be remiss if I did not contemplate the idea that you know um one might be able to use uh, a generative AI system to be the um, nasty reply guy um, uh, on um, posts at a very high rate of speed um, and that perhaps the content would seem less spammy. So like, let's say if the, if vaccine related things were in the news that, you know, you might be able to like, have it say great point but look at these unexplained deaths or something like that um which uh, you know i it seems like it might be a harder thing to detect and also a more credible thing and i i would be curious uh there has been a lot of hype about both chat gpt um and and also um the uh dangers thereof and i'd be curious about your read as to like if that's where we should see, expect to see that in the next six months, or um, if not so much, it's still going to be basic but powerful given that platforms don't do enough. We've been seeing some degree of this, you know, machine learning or um, um, just learning AI, uh, broadly speaking, being deployed for the purposes of propaganda for, for a couple of years now. Um, but uh, you have to kind of know the people who are deploying it to even catch it or understand that that's what's happening. So I've had people show me, you know, like ways in which they're using machine learning in some of the bots that they they use. But those folks up until recently have been few and far between because these products were expensive to run. They still are incredibly expensive to run. ChatGPT, for instance, you know, someone was telling me it costs millions of days, dollars a day to run. Um, uh uh, but now they're becoming more ubiquitous, more publicly accessible. And so that does mean that we should be absolutely concerned about the ways in which all sorts of types of people might try to leverage these tools in order to create more sophisticated propaganda in a way that looks more legitimate, exactly like you were saying, like, hey, look at these legitimate scientific sources. Um, here's the facts, right? Like, 
you know, any technology, most technologies, particularly media technologies, when they are first launched are talked about as if they are the saviors of democracy. It happened with the newspaper, it happened with television. Uh, there's always this conversation as if like this tool is the new educational tool and it's going to make everyone so much smarter and it's going to help us to govern better. That happened with the internet, that happened with social media. Um, and I think in some ways people have a conversation about how great chat GPT is. Of course, they're going to talk about how it's used for cheating on term papers, whatever. But we should absolutely be asking questions about how ChatGPT and these kinds of tools will be manipulated because they will. People will co-opt these tools for their own purposes, and particularly the powerful will co-opt them. And, and in many ways, uh, suffice to say, these tools are already being used. So the social media companies have a big task on their hands. Um, there's a reason why it's beneficial to get us to focus on very benign, clunky crypto bots because the, the problem is so much more advanced now than that. It's, 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 it's come leaps and bounds. Should we uh, get to the q and I believe there was a suggestion sure. this morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that, uh, how do we open that up? Um, you know, I've been uh, encouraging people to post and I'm gonna do that one more time. So folks, if you do have questions, now is the time. If you wanna continue with this kind of train of, of conversations yeah, sure. for maybe one more question, just give them a chance to kind of generate some. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, so final question here would be, um, if you looked at this stuff in relation to um, January 6th, um, yeah, we were talking earlier today about some of the, um, uh, the entities that organized it. And I was stating um, that, you know, Kylie Creamer, who was one of the women, um, the mother-daughter duo who, put together the January 6th rally, uh, was explaining that the Stop the Steal group that she'd formed was growing so fast, it broke a lot of algorithms. Um, and that struck me as not necessarily a technically correct uh, view of, of uh, you know, algorithms. Um, but I, um, I guess I'm curious. At the same time, though, there was also um, a real focus in some of the um, uh, the J6 committee report on inauthenticity and on sort of coordination. I'd be curious if there was a um, if the computational element of that um, pops up uh, popped up in your work. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's been a lot of conversation about the role of platforms in January the sixth and the, and who was doing what and how. Um, you know, I, I went and looked over some of the depots, depositions of, of the folks that you're talking about. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, we, you and I can both agree on is that these weren't the savviest actors out there, that, that they were kind of, they were using these tools in such a way that brought together a bunch of sundry people who had very anti-institutional beliefs and uh, were able to, to gather and leverage these tools. Um, oftentimes for like simple communication and uh, for organization and for coordination. Um, we can't say that Facebook, you know, caused January 6th, but we can absolutely say without a shadow of a doubt that Facebook, uh, it's, it's platform, what that Meta's platform, WhatsApp, um, Telegram, many of these platforms played an integral role in communication and coordination about this stuff. Um, were there bots involved? There was, there was, a, a, there, there has been, yes, some bots involved in some of this. A lot of it was more human coordination, though. Um, 
And, you know, we're actually starting to dig through some of the data sets on Gen 6, or we have been for the last year or so at my lab. And some of what we're finding is, is really, really interesting. I think that power players like influencers and these folks that have millions of hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on Instagram, on, on other platforms, they are key nodes for, for how we have to understand how this stuff works today. Um, so I think we have a, we have a question from Susan Lipman of just about the uh, inevitability of, um, uh, of this sort of thing happening on a revenue driven platform. Um, and I, I would be, uh, you know, I, I would be curious as to your read on that and, and as to, um, uh, whether also this is something that is healthy or unhealthy for the platforms themselves. Look, like, you know, one of the biggest questions I've had in the back of my mind for the last 10 years is to what extent does inauthentic content on and inauthentic, do inauthentic profiles on these platforms help their bottom line? Um, so, you know, how does it drive up advertising? Uh, how does it drive up user counts? One of Elon Musk's big, big complaints when he was trying to get out of buying Twitter was we just can't really know how many bots there are on Twitter and how many real people there are and to what extent does that affect um, you know affect the actual buying and selling of ads which is the business of these companies and and to what extent are they kind of shells like is this actually efficacious um, is it inevitable on these platforms that we we have what we have I, you know under the current design, the way that they're designed now, the way that they're built, the way that they're they're built to optimize our attention and keep us on platform and also to sell ads, it's pretty difficult to foresee that they would change significantly enough in their current format to become something that didn't allow this. We need new social media platforms like these piecemeal overhauls of like certain small parts of the platforms are, are again, I feel are misdirection. Um, there are groups that are doing some really cool uh, Cool work in the space, um, but they've got a high hill to climb because we're talking about very, very powerful companies. Even though they've they've lost some market share in the last six months, even they're still incredibly powerful, and they still are able to edge out most other competition quite quickly. Is this like, are they just going along for the ride? Like the, the in terms of the the bot uh, and the computational propaganda component of this? Is it something that's just like we maximize growth and these guys just happen to be very good at taking advantage of it? Or do you actually see it as somewhat symbiotic? In other words, are any of these entities producing content and engagement that, uh, that is, you know, actually keeps people on the platform entertained? You know, like I do think there there's there's certainly aspects of these platforms that keep people entertained. Like people people that I know and love really do like Instagram and TikTok, and they feel that they're they're that they're a creative outlet for them in many ways. Um, that being said, there is so much mindless scrolling and and sort of like I find myself. Uh, this is anecdotal, but something that I find myself doing is constantly logging on to social media platforms when I did it two minutes ago and I know nothing is going to have changed, um, despite the fact I study this stuff. And so there's something also in your you're having this conversation with me. So that's really rude, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter <laughs> right now, but anyway, no, um, but, but, but 
so so you you can have benefits while also having negatives uh, um it's just that i don't after everything i've seen uh, at these companies especially in the last several months but you know over the last few years i don't think we're going to see very much change until it's regulated by the government um and i'm not saying i'm not a massive fan of the idea of regulating speech and media but there has to be some kind of regulation and it just hasn't happened um the other You're thing the like more like rate limits and i mean things of that nature right yeah much less much more that and much much less you know tr you know true like any kind of censorship of speech and those kinds of things i'm not i'm not a fan of that although there are things that you can do right like you can prohibit people from posting content that disenfranchises people that takes away their vote uh, or that misleads them about voting we see a ton of that online still you can also prohibit people from targeting marginalized communities uh, with specific kinds of harassment in an amplified way we see a ton of that um I, you know, Facebook, YouTube, um, Twitter, all of these folks, they didn't acknowledge that computational propaganda existed until until 2016, until they couldn't any longer continue to pretend that there wasn't a problem on the platform. They basically ignored it until that time. We gave them so much research. They knew this was happening. I honestly think that they're hoping that we forget. I think, you know, and then Facebook and Meta's so-called move to to end an encryption across all platforms, if that's still going to happen, that seems like a patently obvious move towards getting people to not pay attention to what's happening behind closed doors. Um, there's a question about uh, estimates of the cost. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I would be interested in your sense of that and also just estimates of the scale. I mean, to some degree, like, is there a way to at least tell what's coming through the back end as opposed to from um, a user at a keyboard um, and how that sort of what portion of content that is? I mean, I think the, not really the cost and the scale are unthinkably high in, in both of these cases. Like, I feel no compunction in saying that the cost of not just computational propaganda, but coordinated and authentic behavior on these platforms um, in all of its forms is certainly in the billions of dollars every year. Um, and then also that, you know, the scale of this stuff is, you know, we're talking about thousands, millions of engagements every minute. Um, and so it's almost impossible to count. And it's almost it's almost a non-starter even trying to estimate scale or sheer quantity because none of us actually really have access to the ability to measure that, not even on all the platforms, but let alone one platform. Because we're denied access, we don't we don't have that access. Uh, right. We rely upon them to give it to us, and they give it to us piecemeal. Do you have a sense that if you did have that access, you could come up with reliable estimates in a fairly prompt fashion or um i mean you know meta says that you know five percent of of its accounts are fake uh you know that's sort of reported it's been that number for a long time um i mean do you have a, like did, first of all do you find that credible and is there is there is your sense the people working on this stuff i mean you mentioned you know you know some of these people and that they recently were laid off um but 
do they have a sense of, of um, whether that is a reliable estimate and whether what portion of activity is coming from, of engagement is coming from um, non-people, shall we say? So two things, I think one thing, in terms of my interviewees that have worked at these companies, and there's a lot of them, they, they've told me again and again that those numbers are low. They're, they're purposefully low. Um, and uh, the second thing is that oftentimes what they've also said is that they don't think that the companies truly know how much inauthentic behavior there is on their platforms, that they've scaled so fast, particularly in the case of Facebook, but also WhatsApp and YouTube. They've scaled so fast and they did not build in the fail safes that we're saying are needed uh, early on. They're trying to do it after the fact. And so that there's so much traffic on these sites that it's just by its by its sheer amount untrackable, even through sophisticated AI mechanisms, and even those get get things wrong quite a lot of the time. If I had access to you know the the Twitter firehose, and I've I've worked on research teams that have, would would I be able to do? You know, more no, no, efficient. Not, not that I'm talking about. Also, metadata, IP. Oh yeah. Every like like the because the Firehose oh. just gives you all the tweets, and I don't know that helps you that much. But yeah, could we do? I mean, we could do so much just at my team, but um, researchers around the world who work on this stuff just at universities could, I would think, very quickly come together to do a lot more than we've seen happen within the companies because. Even the researchers that I respect in these companies and, and that I've liked, many of whom, as I've mentioned, have been fired, they even those folks are product focused. So they are still working on teams that tend to push them towards optimization of a product. They're not working on research for the sake of research. They're not doing the kind of work that that you know we're talking about here. And so um so you know, I'm hopeful that there 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 is a lot of possibility there. I, I do think that the social media platforms are quite worried about that day happening because it would functionally mean that they've lied to the Securities and Exchange Commission for years and years and years about the number of fake profiles on the platforms. I mean, there are the privacy issues um, are obviously also significant for external data, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't argue that privacy is the only reason why that information hasn't been made public. That's so true. I mean, and, and that that is a trump card that's often played, but I don't think that's an insurmountable challenge, particularly if you figure out controlled ways of allowing vetted third party researchers access to, to the content, um, you know, especially on a site, you know, on sites that are more publicly facing off, you know, of course, I would never ask for that on WhatsApp or Signal or some such because they couldn't give it and it wouldn't be ethical. Does anybody else have a final question? I have one more I'm going to ask right now, um, which is uh, toward the end of the book, there is a reference to, you know, and obviously your your sources are unnamed because most people don't wish to be known for their violations of terms of service. Um, there is a source who you describe as sort of really distinguishing himself as like basically having his own as sort of being an aspiring pundit who had his own army. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm curious about what made that person different than the others. Um, and also what he hoped to get out of it. Uh, Cause I think, and that, and the point of exactly of like, what, 
how does that, you know, um, lead to, to fame and fortune in mm. your mind? This person uh, that you're talking about was a diehard political junkie um, and also a former software engineer um, and lives in the, the middle of the United States and spends basically all of his time online. Um, and if you go to this person's house, which you probably never will, obviously, you would be blown away by the amount of technological capacity they have, he has in his house. Um, just he's running, we're talking about running multiple computers, uh, you know, at a given time, you know, access to things that most, it doesn't even, it's not even worth going into. Um, so on the one hand, this person spends, he spends all his time online. He's connected all the time. And so he is a power user on social media. On the other hand, he has the know-how to amplify his own voice. And I think that for him, uh, he thought, that the coolest thing he could possibly do was become a, a trusted voice in the political ecosystem that he was most interested in. <laughs> and that, that was his, like, that was his, you know, that was his dream. And, and he's honestly, he's, a, he's achieved it in, in many ways. He has, I haven't looked at his profile online on various social media for a while, but last time I had looked, he had millions of followers and, and um, was retweeted by, ex-presidents and other folks like that so um impressive i mean i doesn't he know that the way you built get millions of followers is that you steal content from youtube and then um uh, like viral content from youtube and then just post it shamelessly over and over uh but i mean it's, it this gets back to the question of like the overlap between what you can do with computational propaganda and what a platform assists with that. Final question here was, according to your new book, social media platforms are encoded with a variety of bias. Uh, it's a, this is a good question because I was actually planning on asking you about this. They've, uh, those affect user behaviors. As a result of that, most of the studies based on the data from social media must be unreliable because the data are contaminated by encoded bias and most studies ignore its effects. I've never read the paper of, of quantitative analysis on, um, to this field that mentioned encoded bias in social media platforms. And I would be curious what you have to say about that, and then I might want to close that out by arguing with it. Uh, but let's uh... <laughs> look like um, there's there's bias coded in at the software at the at the code level. Uh, you have Meredith Broussard's forthcoming book, More Than a Glitch, that talks about this. You have Safia Noble's book, um, both amazing books talking about this bias. Uh, as an ethnographic researcher. I focus so much upon people and the, the ways in which the motivations people have in doing the work that they do. And so these are human oriented stories. I've long been skeptical of, of a lot of the quantitative research out there, particularly on Twitter, because of this exact fear. Um, you know, a trump card that you can still play to this day at any conference where you see an academic pre presenting quantitative data on Twitter is to say, well, do you know how how many bots were in in that sample? Like, do, you know, like you're making some really big claims. Do you know how many bots are in the sample? And the answer is usually no. I didn't think about that. I'll let you know in the next paper. Um, no, they won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't. No, they won't. And so, um, yeah, you know, there 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 are some issues there, but there's always issues with data in science, right? Like there, you know, and data cleaning is a whole uh is a whole business there's people that professionalize in this and so we've gotten quite good 
at cleaning data, is that does that mean that there's still not racism encoded into algorithms and those sorts of things? No. But does it mean that we think we can still we can say substantive things with the data? Yes. Can we talk about first order effects? Like, can we say that Russian propaganda on Twitter caused Trump to win the 2016 election? No, that's not how the internet works. We can talk about second, third order effects. People like Kate Starbird and other researchers have talked about this to a great degree. And so, you know, like we just have to rethink the arguments that we make leveraging social media data. We don't need right. to try to, to solve, you know, to solve dividing zero. Like we can do other things. I don't think I need to argue with that then. No, it's just the, the bias <laughs> element that um, it seems like is always assumed is like that, you know, the Democrats are sneak secretly sneaking in democratic code. <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know uh, I guess I've, I've just never seen indications of them doing so effectively if they even tried, which generally they didn't. Uh, so actually, we have one more question from Robert, which is uh, whether your book discusses uh, content moderation as a form of influencing consensus by removing factual information from view. Uh, yeah, you know, and that kind of touches on what you were just talking about, like, do, do people with particular partisan perspectives or uh, speech oriented perspectives or censorship oriented perspectives uh, affect what shows up on the platforms. Um, content moderation uh, is a messy, messy, messy space. And, um, you know, people like Tarleton Gillespie have written about this, Sarah Roberts, very effectively talking about the custodians of the internet, I uh, would point you to their work. What I would say is, yeah, there are circumstances in which bad decisions get made and content gets moderated. But the thing I was going to say in response to to what what Jeff said is that the people that work at these platforms are so scared, so terrified of being accused of being partisan, and they have been for a very, very long time, that they almost oftentimes overcompensate and take way too long to make decisions about things than actually acting um, acting. Uh, without thought. I, I think that I think the exact in my experience with these companies, the exact opposite is true, that they overthink things or or that they just never act. Yeah, I've I've always the the idea that suppressing the New York Post Hunter Biden story was in some ways a triumph of censorship is always a very funny concept to me, um, given that literally that got the thing a hundred times more attention than it would have ever earned. Uh, mm -hmm. You have, I, I don't think you need to address this one to me, but you have a call for um, uh, a particular paper about Midori, the PR agent in Japan. Um, uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, write another book, damn it. <laughs> I'll work on that. Thanks for letting me know. Um, okay. Well, Jeff, um, you could slip it in your book, actually. Why don't you do that? Yeah. Oh no, no, no. I'm, I'm, the, the computational propaganda stuff is is uh, is difficult. I'm kind of more on the. I mean, you cross into it the system design elements, but yeah, um, they're obviously intertwined. So, indeed. Well, well thank we're you. At the top of the hour, and I really want to thank both of you for a very stimulating, thought provoking, at some levels, kind of chilling. <laughs> evening oh, we're screwed we're screwed yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh a lot to think about yeah sam's book actually does have a conclusion in terms of uh you know what the solution and way forward is on this um and it's a little less convincing than the rest of the book but there are some good ideas there um, i really had to dig deep for that uh look to, <laughs> groups like new public are doing really cool work on this new public everyone look at them up
Yeah. No endorsements on this end. All right. Um, <laughs> Thank thanks. you both, man. I really appreciate it. I want to send a big shout out to Caitlin Gallagher and Jennifer Doer at Yale University Press for all their efforts in actually making tonight a reality. Uh, last but not least, thanks to all of you for joining us from around the country and also around the world. Um, I posted links, of course, from which you may purchase books. Um, if you're in the hood, please come on down and pay us a visit. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 11 to 8, and then back to pre-pandemic hours almost on Friday through Saturday, 11 to 9. Uh, tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. And big congrats to City Lights for winning the Toni Morrison Award today. <laughs> well, well-deserved. All right, y'all. Take, take care. care.